Welcome to Bread and Poppies, a show about why drugs are good, capitalism is bad, and what to do about it. Welcome back to Bread and Poppies. If you're new to the show, I'm Hilary Agro, and I'm an anthropologist who studies drugs and our relationship to them as individuals, as a society, and as a species. I also study activism and organizing by drug users against prohibition and capitalism, and I do all of that stuff myself as well. Part of that activism is doing public education projects like this podcast. Skip to about four minutes in if you'd like to listen to the interview without my show preamble. On a personal note, to those who've been wondering how I'm doing during my burnout-related Twitter break, um, (laughs) I'm okay. I'm starting to feel better, but it's been a really hard couple of months, probably the hardest of my entire life, to be honest. My whole family got COVID, including my uh, three-year-old daughter and my 10-month-old baby, who was hospitalized because of it. I had to call 911 at four in the morning because she couldn't breathe um, and the paramedics came and we just, yeah, it was, it was really horrible. Um, we had to be in the hospital for a couple days, but thankfully she is better now and um, we all are. With childcare disruptions, work pressure and being sick, I wasn't really able to fully recover from COVID myself and the stress just kind of caught up with me um, as well as a few other poorly timed things. So. I had to kind of leave um, social media to focus on my health and my kids for a bit, but I'm on the mend. Still not totally sure I'm ready to come back to Twitter because I have to be like emotionally prepared to just deal with the onslaught of existing on Twitter as a large account. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm gonna slowly trickle back on. I want to send a profound thank you to those who sent money on PayPal and diapers and things from my Amazon baby registry while we were all sick. Um, There was even somebody who sent me a bag of mini chocolate bars that I added there just for me, and I cried when I opened it. Um, It was just so, so sweet. So I can't even tell you folks how helpful that was. It was really, really sweet and um, took the pressure off of a really, really horrible month. Uh, The registry's still up and the baby still needs diapers and mama still needs chocolate and books for school if anyone wants to um, still help out. And as always to my Patreon supporters, you mean the world to me. You allow me to do this work and hopefully I can do more of it if I can build up enough income to do it full time. To become a Patreon supporter, click the link in the show description or go to patreon.com slash hillaryagro. The way I always put it is that if you want to fight to end the war on drugs but don't have the time yourself to do the kind of thing that I'm doing, supporting my work is a nice option. You can help me afford childcare and I will go yell at politicians on behalf of all of us. (laughs) I'm like a lobbyist, but for the good guys. (laughs) I've probably got to get more comfortable at asking people to become patrons. The only thing that makes me more uncomfortable than uh, asking people to support me financially is the thought of not being able to do this work anymore because I am forced to uh, do other income generating things that are not as socially helpful. But also, you know what? There are some real fucking grifters out there on the right who have Patreons and GoFundMes and all that, and they're not at all ashamed about it. So maybe I should spend like 5% less time agonizing over whether I'm doing the absolute most that I possibly can to help end injustice, working myself to the point of burnout during my unpaid maternity leave, and 5% more time just being like, yes, I'm doing this and you can help me out if you want to. Here's the link. Rave Mom is back and I made you some content. (laughs) Oh, we live in hell. I'm verbalizing my internal monologue at this point. 
Just having these conversations with myself all day, every day, normal brain hours. Anyways, so thank you so much. I will continue to try to release uh, extra material on there as a way of showing my thanks. Today, we're releasing part two of my interview series with Daniel Musig. He's a former criminal defense attorney who's been sentenced to five years in federal U.S. prison for selling cannabis. In 2002, in Pennsylvania, where it's legal at the state level. That's pretty fucked up, you're thinking. And you're right. In this episode, we explore more about what happened to him and about what will happen to him after he gets out of prison, because the harm doesn't end when he finally walks out of prison. The system is set up to grind every last shred of dignity out of the people who are caught up in it. Listen to Dan tell his story in his own words. And note that this was recorded in December 2021, but we couldn't release it until after his sentencing, which was on March 8. Okay. Hi again, Dan. Thanks for joining me. Hello. I really appreciate you having me back on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, your story is important. People need to hear it. And um, yeah, it's been nice to start to get to know you a little bit because, yeah, I, 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 I truly believe that uh, as leftists, if we're not organizing, you know, every section of the working class, including people who uh, have been had their lives stolen by the state, then we're not doing a good job. So, yeah, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate having someone involved in some form of public facing media who is willing to actually listen to the nuances of myself and other stories, as opposed to going for the quickest, cheapest, you know, finger shaking, jam it in your eye. Gotcha. Which yeah. Everyone else did to me on the worst day of my life. You know, they well, that's not true. The worst day of my life thus far. I'll have plenty of other worse ones coming up. Oh, God. What a thing to process and yeah. have in your head. Um, and that, I mean, that's the fucked up thing. Like, that, that it's, we both know that. Like, you're going to federal prison. Like, that's that's so fucked. Like, no, it just, is. yeah. I, I mean, I'm in my house now, my upstairs living room and my normal clothes. Woke up in my bed next to my wife, same pillows, you know, whatever. All the all the mundane quotidian details that would comprise someone's normal life. And then I just close my eyes. And when I open them, I'm in, you know, like a school locker room style DMV bathroom. I'm clad in rough khaki or a crappy sweatsuit of all gray. And I look around and everything's, you know, uh, overpainted cinder block with the gray industrial flooring and everyone around me is another sad, tired, angry, scared, depressed man. Mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, I, I, (laughs) you're also going to be around only men for five years. That's yeah. It's, it it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrific regardless, you know, and I'm a, I'm a cis married man, but it's regardless, I think of anyone's orientation, identification, gender, whatever, when you're a man and you're completely deprived of the presence of any type of women or children in your life, whether you have kids or not, I mean, that's when you see people become incredibly unhinged, psychotic, aggressive, whatever, because they're deprived of a lot of the people in their life that would help open them up to any sort of empathy or, 
calm or love or whatever, you know, I, so I realized that as a COVID, I'm only going to get about two visits a month and they're non-contact. Like before COVID, you would get six to eight visits a month, depending. It was a point system and relatives were awarded this many points and friends were awarded this many. It was a whole thing because of COVID. They first cut visits altogether. And a lot of places still don't have visits. The places that do, you get two a month. Some get three, most get two. They're through a plastic partition that they've hastily erected in the visiting room right. and there's no contact. So whenever I kiss and hug my wife and mom goodbye, that's the last time I'm going to touch them until I'm free. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's horrifying to, to contemplate, um, but people need to. And I encourage the people listening to this um, to not shy away from, from like imagining that yourself because putting yourself in those shoes is the only way that we can truly like sit with the horror that is the prison industrial complex. That is the war on drugs. That is capitalism that is doing this to people because we are uh, encouraged um, from, from birth, from childhood to begin to dehumanize our fellow humans because it's the only way that we can sort of like tolerate homelessness and prisons and all of these awful things that help capitalism run is by just not thinking about it, by dehumanizing, by desi- deciding that people deserve it. Um, and it's not true. And it's really, really difficult emotionally to process the fact that um, this is all incredibly wrong, but it's important and it'll, it'll spur our work. So yeah, so thank you for, for sharing this too. Um, and uh, so one thing that my partner pointed out to me as I was telling him about this and, and we were listening to the, to the first interview that we did was that I think that there's a, uh, you know, there's many misconceptions that people have about the quote unquote justice system. But one of them is that you kind of assume that once somebody either pleads guilty or is sentenced or whatever, um, as soon as the decision is made that this person is going to prison, they're just kind of carted off in chains right away. But the idea that uh, you get to spend time with your family first, it's probably good in a way because you get to enjoy that time with them, but then also you have this hanging over you for months and months as you live your life. And it also just seems like, okay, if prison is such a necessary part of society, that if you are so dangerous that we need to lock you away from regular society, why can that wait? Like, it, it just feels like it, it exposes one of the contradictions of the system that like, oh no, we need to put away this dangerous person, but also we can do it later. It's fine. He can just like live in yeah, society for a while. Twist on the vine. Oh, I mean, so I can, I can answer that question on a variety of levels. One, this has completely poisoned my life, this experience of being on bond. You know, like I said, I'm a ghost that haunts a vestigial version of my previous life. I'm essentially the Bruce Willis character in The Sixth Sense that someone told he was dead, you know, and Mm -hmm. he's like trying to process that. It is almost impossible for me to be around anyone, family or friends, because kind of the emotions of the past, at least for me, you know, I think it's easier, obviously, when you're on the other side of it to be empathetic or not. But for me, you know, when I go to my family's house, I think about growing up in that house and I think about the good holidays we had there and all the good times and basically just any time in my fucking life where this this plague, this this pestilence that's been rained down upon myself and my wife and my family wasn't there. And you look at your previous life while you're on bond waiting to go in. And it's like, like I said before in a previous podcast, it's become one of my 
catchphrases. Every good memory is a lie. The good memories hurt more than the bad ones. So things that show you good memories are infinitely more painful. And being on Bond just exacerbates that. I have said that I, because I, I'm in correspondence with a lot of other cannabis prisoners and their families, some of whom I knew previously as friends socially before this, or I'm kind of like the loose brotherhood of traffickers of cannabis that exists throughout North America. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and one thing that I said was, and I realized that maybe I'm writing a check that I haven't had the cash but is that I just wish that I had been taken in right when I had been indicted. So this way I'd be four months into my sentence already, as opposed to just kind of twisting out here, watching the days kind of dwindle and drift, unable to really do anything meaningful in my life besides eat, sleep and exist. Yeah. And, you know, just completely driven away mentally from anything I loved or anything that gave me, a speck of joy. So one of the guys that got indicted in this original case, he did, he killed himself while he was on bond for this yeah. indictment. God. He could not, he could not take the pressure. He couldn't take the pain. He couldn't take the anxiety anymore and the sadness and same thing. You know, he had just been completely decoupled from his previous life. I believe he had been fired from his job. You know, there's he was facing social stigma from people in his community. Obviously I think he lived in the suburbs. Oh. It was one conservative there and so he was and i guess uh, you know to make these connections as we do to capitalism i I assume it was sort of like a um that pennsylvania is a right to work state or something because i I know that there's places where you can't just fire somebody for like you know know, work-related reason yeah i I believe we are or he just wasn't educated enough and they did it to him anyways right so another thing and i don't want to segue into a segue into a segue but that's just the nature of this beast when we're talking like this. Even. Yeah. But, uh, so another thing is that people, while you're on bond, you have an incredible amount of challenges to surmount. You have to basically figure out how to make your legitimate income stream as impervious to the depredations of the government as possible. Or if you're involved in illegal activity still, I guess you would have to figure out how to hustle while on bond and not get caught again. Yeah, because if you get you, caught again, I assume you go to prison for... You go to prison for times long. As long. Yeah. yeah, they remand your bond. They remand you immediately. You can get a new case and get charges on top of charges. It's, it's all bad. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you have to do that. So you have to put your affairs in order logistically, like all the things that the last things that you want to fucking think about right now, like putting utility bills in other people's names and creating trusts and corporate systems to ensure that your businesses even have some chance of survival, figuring out alternate employment because your original two employers canned you when they heard uh, making wills, just things that like, even in a normal day, if I drop those on your desk, you'd be like, Oh, fuck off, man. But you have to do them all now. And you have to basically work doing the type of work that your brain would just rebel against under these circumstances, under unremitting pressure with a clock ticking down. Yeah. And with depression and PTSD. Yeah, with with horrific which already makes it incredibly hard to even just get out of bed in the morning, let alone fill up. Exactly. Yeah, with horrific depression and PTSD. And the thing is that a lot of people around you, they don't necessarily have a great deal of empathy for that. They, they even though most people are generally sympathetic to highly sympathetic about <clears throat> you having to go to prison for this, 
there's also just people have a paradigmatic expectation of how a person is based on their previous interactions with that person. And the more interactions you had, honestly, to a certain extent, the less nuanced it is. So therefore, like those closest to you keep expecting you to quote unquote buck up or snap out of it or whatever. Oh, they're, and they're helping and they're helping you too. So it's really a very fraught two-way street. Like I get mm-hmm. into this with my dad all the time because when I speak to him, I'm pretty morose, catatonic. I burst out into jags of tears. You know, I just don't feel good. I'm not okay. You know, mm-hmm. I, I really I struggle with even wanting to live most days. And he's doing yeoman's work for me in terms of basically agreeing to prop my life up and carry on his shoulders whatever needs to be carried Mm -hmm. logistically resourcefully whatever but at the same time there's then a lot of expectations on me where you know i'm just kind of like looking at the wall thinking about something that happened when i was eight and being like jesus christ that would cut off my right fucking arm to be that kid again right now (laughs) And then he's calling me and he's talking about like my living will and power of attorney and trust documents and stuff like that. And I am incredibly and immensely appreciative of him. I've, I'm sorry that I put him in this position in the first place, but it's also really hard because I can tell he just, he gets angry. You know, he's just like, I hate the fact that you can't just snap out of it and kind of grab the reins of this horse and figure shit out. Right. And yeah. that, that, that ties into, you know, the um, stigmatization, but also just misunderstanding and, and lack of understanding of mental health that we have just as a society in general, that, you know, it's, your, your mental health is not a separate thing from your bodily health. Like your brain is a part of your body. You can't, yeah, you can't he, force I mean, yourself to get over PTSD any more than you can force cancer cells to go away. Like you just, yeah, I mean, he's a, he, he's a boomer who went through a lot of horrific stuff in his own childhood and then forged himself into a really, really good, kind, honest, hardworking person who became a self-made millionaire and is like highly educated and erudite and urbane and disciplined and stuff like that. So he's a hard person to, uh, his his own his own resume in life right, makes yeah. it very difficult for me, particularly someone who is the beneficiary of his love and largesse for so many years, and then turned around and did this as a career choice. Makes it very difficult for me to like make those arguments to him, and I'm not really cogent because when I'm around family, I just think about, like yeah, I said, of course, anything, anything but this, you know. So back to back to the original point, yes. back through to this. So, you know, I, a lot of the stuff about turning yourself in, not turning yourself in, whatever, it's a legal fiction that's predicated on the fact that everyone in the American justice system, at least, is presumed innocent until proven guilty, which is an absolute joke, particularly in the feds, when they select their targets and they have a 99% conviction rate and they have all the rats lined up against you, whatever, you know, I forget 97, 99, 91. Let's not split hairs. Everybody who gets indicted goes to prison yeah. pretty much unless you're a prolific cooperator on a level that I could even scarcely contemplate in a nuts and bolts sense, or you're one of the few, you know, dozen people every year who rolls the dice, goes to trial and wins. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people breaking the law. Of course they can just pick and choose whatever, like the, the cases that are going to make them look good. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. They cherry pick the cases to the point where... <laughs> 
I actually got contacted by people in the Pittsburgh police force after I pled out. And they literally said to me, basically, as a, as a, they, they wanted me to know that they thought it was bullshit too. And that, that they themselves would never have pursued a case like this. Wow. Because under city guidelines and count, county, local, state ordinances, it would most likely, the disposition would have ended in probation or minimal incarceration. They'd have been like, well, you know, it's not even worth it to do. Yeah, it'd be like selling bootleg alcohol. Like, uh-huh, exactly, yeah, exactly. I mean, you feel, I might have to go to prison, but I certainly wouldn't be looking at, you know, what I'm looking at. Even they were like, this is total fucking bullshit, and the feds always do this shit. Basically, their implication wow. was that they have to actually interdict violent crime that they have to respond to uh re- you know retroactively like people get shot they have to show up and figure out who shot who mm-hmm. people get assaulted raped houses get burnt down whatever whereas the feds get to do these really long static historical investigations and use their infinite money and resources just to flip one drug dealer against yeah. another yeah they're like they're like it's they, yeah they're like they're like it's just bullshit they're like it's it's bullshit. Now that said, look, I don't have any sympathy for police or and whatnot. I'm not in my moment of trauma gonna ally myself with a system that I find to be fundamentally corrupt and unjust. But of course, but pointing out the contradictions is right. is important. Right, right, like right. yeah, a cab, but like also it's more complex than that. Right. Yeah, and and I I appreciated the person because clearly they knew me from before either of us were who we are now. And the and 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 you know and I appreciate them at least in their limited sense telling me the truth about what they thought. It just goes to show you though that even you know even amongst law enforcement, they're like this is bullshit. There's only one segment of law enforcement that still thinks this is important. Yeah, and 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 drugs of all things, like because you know not everything that's uh, illegal should be illegal, but drugs, uh, drugs and sex work are really the two main ones that it's like. You know, people, even even cops, kind of understand implicitly and ethically that you're not really, not all of them, but that you're not really hurting anybody. Um, and I, I'm sure they wouldn't feel the same way if you were, like, human trafficking, you know? Like, it's right, just... Yeah, for sure. Or, yeah, or, I, I mean, again, like, their main one is just constantly responding to murders. You know, we have a ton of guns in America. The reason that violence occurs is structural poverty and racism. I mean, they probably don't feel that way, but their job every day is to respond to people getting shot and figure out who shot them and try and stop people. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a victim involved. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a victim involved. And again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to have sympathy for the devil, so to speak, yeah. because in reality they're perpetuating anything much more than they're solving it. But contra- but again, like you were saying in our previous talk, contrasting America with Canada or whatever, it's, it's disingenuous to pretend that it's all equal like to the point now where, yeah. So it's just like, it's in terms of pursuit, in terms of individual brutality, no, a uniform cop on the street is, is is someone's worst nightmare, particularly a person of color or someone of a marginalized community Mm -hmm. in terms of, in the context now we're talking about is like mandatory sentences and drug investigations and stuff like that. The fed, you know, the genteel urbane college educated, works in a nice office cop who's a federal agent they're the one because they'll be polite the entire time to you you know what i mean they're gonna smile at you and ask how you're doing if you want a cup of water when you're sitting in court whatever good morning sir how are how is everyone today gentlemen whatever fucking christ yeah 
You just a, you, you would want to really just deck them at every time. Like I, I yeah. not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not encouraging you to talk about this kind of thing, but uh, I just I admire the restraint that people in your situation have to have at all times while around these fucking people. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, when I got indicted, the assistant United States attorney literally came up to me while I was sitting in court the first day when I got hauled in a few months ago. She said, good morning, Mr. Music. Would you like a copy of your indictment? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just like, oh, you, know, you know what you did and you know what it's over. Like why, why, why just for me, I was like, why pretend that you don't despise me? Yeah. Because if you didn't despise me, you have purview over a wide variety of cases you could have chosen to do something else. Instead, you worked my case for two and a half years to do this yeah. with my family. Or at the, at the very least, don't pretend that she didn't use you for her own career because oh, no, that's she all you were. No, so. she definitely it was a nice. It was a nice feather in the cap for like what honestly is relatively low-hanging fruit in the criminal world. It wasn't like I was violent and it wasn't like I tried to evade or flee or whatever. I was sitting in the same house I went back to the day after the fucking raid. It was the same house I was sitting in when my attorney called me and told me that my life was over. So yeah, it's, it's all, it's all predicated on the assumption of innocence. So basically what happens is in the federal system, once you get convicted, they have to continue your bond. So my bond is continued right now until I get sentenced. And then I would have to get my bond continued again. And then if my bond is continued again, then I would be allowed to self-surrender, which means that the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons, generates a letter to me telling me what facility they've decided I have to be designated at. And then I'm given a date and a time to report to the front door of that facility. I walk myself in. Um, in state court, it's different. When you get convicted, at least in PA, in state court, you go right out through the back door. And that actually could happen to me in federal court too. Like I, I might actually have no ability to surrender myself. So when I show up for sentencing on, uh, on March 8th, a auspicious day for you, at least, um, I will, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm going to wear a suit and stuff, but <clears throat> I'm going to make sure that <clears throat> all my personal effects are in one pocket so I can just hand them off to my lawyer to give to my wife and my family, you know, that, my belt is ready to be taken off quickly. I'll probably wear slide-on loafers so there's no laces in the shoes because I could be going right through the tunnel um, mm -hmm. a few moments after the judge smacks the gavel. Hmm. Yeah. God. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I have so I have more questions. Shoot. Um, one thing I'm actually curious about, and it's kind of related to this, because just like imagining the, you know, the, the, the level of sort of dissociation that you'll have to go through um, to, to survive this. Uh, and something that we talk about a lot in drug policy is the fact that, you know, if, if we can't even keep drugs out of prisons, then how are we supposed to keep them out of the rest of society? Um, is our, our drugs uh, that you know of, of quite available in federal prisons as well? And are, do you plan on trying to avoid um, consuming them in order to get through your time there? As far as I have seen and heard, drugs are pretty widely available in federal prisons. Now, clearly, it's there's some sort of some sort of sliding scale in terms of security level, which makes degree of difficulty of introducing them to the facility uh, 
elevated and then also <clears throat> um, the willingness of the inmate population and the demand and the willingness of the guards to engage in it. So you could have a situation where in the federal system, there's four levels of prisons. There's minimums, which are camps, which are generally like the fenceless ones, which is where I would hope I would go. And contraband in there is pretty rampant, obviously, because you don't need guards to introduce contraband. You, inmates can bring it in themselves because you, if you time it right, you can literally run off the prison grounds and someone can hand you something and you can run back or people, oh, wow. can, or people can dead drop it in the woods or off a road or Something like that. There is a lot of... You can get in and out of the prison grounds? I'd never heard that before. Federal minimum camps are generally fenceless. I mean, if they catch you, it's the same penalty as escaping from a maximum wall or going out in a helicopter or something like that. You get into a lot of fucking trouble. But many fenceless camps, if you Google it anecdotally, a lot of them, guys do leave. They leave to go have sex with their partners. They run out to try and get food here and there, anything. And of course, one of the reasons, you know, obtain phones. One of the reasons would be to go get high. Yeah. Um, I also think that there's are actually. Go- sorry, are you going to a minimum minimum security? Or? I, I won't know. I'm angling. Oh, you don't know. Them, but I have no idea. They right. don't, you know, it's the BOP. It ain't Airbnb. I right. go where they stay. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, you know, I would think I was kind of the poster child for a minimum because they do your points based on like age and nature of offense. And I'm marijuana and I'm almost 40. So mm-hmm. that you know, older you are generally less of a security risk you're considered. And my crime is very nonviolent by nature, but right. who knows? They don't like me. So we'll, right. we'll, we'll see. I also think that in the highest level of security, then it goes lows, mediums, and then it's high, which is USPs. USPs are really, really horrific places, but it's also probably an easy place to get drugs because you're talking about completely incorrigible inmates who are like prison gang members, mostly. So they, the, there is just, they spend literally every set and they're doing life sentences, decades long sentences. So they have absolutely no reason not to do drugs. So they spend pretty much every waking moment trying to figure out how to introduce contraband into the compound, which mostly involves corrupting staff, which they're really, really successful at. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of me personally, I don't think I'm going to do drugs when I'm there. I mean, one thing is like the only drug I really, I mean, I really like psychedelics at certain points in my life, but the main thing I did was I smoked a lot of weed. And so the only chance I have of diminishing the time of my sentence in any way, shape or form is the residential drug abuse program called RDAP, which enables inmates to to shave six months, nine months or 12 months off of their sentence. And I'm eligible if I complete it properly. It's a 500-hour, nine-month program if right. I complete it properly. So you just have to bullshit a lot and pretend that, yes, drugs are bad for me and, you know, yeah, you, I'm yeah, an you, addict and whatever. Yeah, and you, and, you, so you have to, yeah, and you have to take responsibility for what you did to go in there. And yeah. it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of cognitive stuff. They're trying to deprogram you and whatnot it's it's very heavy-handed and they have zero tolerance on anything and they have a very very strong hammer over your head which is if you don't toe that line and you're caught using drugs they boot you from the program they boot you from the program for anything but they yeah they'll they'll boot you so that's a very very strong incentive right yeah uh, to not do anything because if i can complete that then that takes 12 months potentially yeah worth worth any effort yeah yeah which gets me back down to um 
which gets me back down into something that might be under three years, which would make my wife and my family's life as well as mine immensely better, mm-hmm. better being relative. Cause that's the thing that really sucks. Yeah. We had a good life before, you know, they, yeah. they, they, they fucking took it from us. They yes. took everything yeah, from us. That we, yeah. That we gave um, a fuck about. And how long, how, what's the range of probation afterwards that you might be looking at? I think that my minimum probation is called federal supervised release. I think it will be four years. I don't think they can give me any less. They can probably give me more. And when I come out too, I don't even get to be free. The federal system is so marked and so meticulous in its control, restriction, and surveillance on top of people in it that they really, I mean, they're all over you. In the state, when you get out, they usually just pop the gates of the jail, you leave, and then you got to go report to a parole officer, and then you go do visits or whatever. And the feds usually get cycled out to a halfway house where you have to live downtown in the metropolitan area where your jurisdiction is. And it's basically like an open prison. You know, like you're still living in a room with a bunch of dudes you don't know. Well, I, I don't know why I kind of assumed that the uh, role of halfway houses was um, to, okay, now that, now that I'm going to say it out loud, it sounds really stupid, uh, but like to provide housing for people who didn't have somewhere else to go home to. Um, I mean, that could, why I, would they do that? Yeah, they don't give a shit if you're homeless. <laughs> I mean, it could, it could be the case. I mean, theoretically, I guess if you got out of jail and you would know leads on housing or employment opportunities, and you could avail yourself of living in the halfway house. And during that time, you could get a job and they could make, you know, you could find a shelter or a counselor or some sort of ad hoc patchwork situation that America has for people in these positions. And they could get you back to where you needed to be. I mean, I guess that's a possibility. But in this case, that's not, you know, that's not it. You just, when you get out, it's like, oh, no, no, you don't get to go home quite yet. You have to now live just on the edge of freedom Hmm. and we have to monitor control and restrict every aspect of your day for another few months just to make sure that you get the message and that you're securely under our thumb and when you're in the halfway house too they usually make you work and i mean if you can find employment somewhere that works that's fine but like uh, they have a bunch of uh proscriptions against things one of which is you can't work for family. So, you know, you can't just like get a job working for your dad or your mom or your Why? Uncle, what brother. possible? Well, they want to, to make it hard for you and humble you. And then oh, the other and then the other one is that you usually can't own or run <laughs> so your own. Yeah, you can't own or run your own business. What they want is they want you to have a name tag job. You know, they want right. you they, they want, want to funnel you out. into the they want corporate they minimum want, wage. Yeah. And they want, they want, when they want me to get out, they want me to have a visor on and be working at Starbucks, McDonald's, Target, Walmart, somewhere like that for as long as they can make me. They can't make you do it forever, you know, but a couple months, a year, whatever, because that for them, um, they really like that because then people in your community see you and they're like, oh, Right. That was damn. That dude made a shit ton of money, fucking smuggling a lot of weed into the city of Pittsburgh and selling it or whatever. I dude, I saw my Taco Bell on the drive-through window. You know what I mean? Wow. Snickers. And again, not that there's anything wrong with any of those jobs. There's no yeah. ability. All work. Every worker is entitled to a living wage, respect, good conditions. I'm yes. not saying that, but Absolutely. we also know how people's minds work, and it's like they think it's a powerful deterrent 
yeah, those jobs are systematically, you know, devalued and stigmatized because, yeah, we want people because, God forbid, the the workers in those in those situations um, feel that they have dignity and rights because what would happen then? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So they want they want you in a low wage customer service job, preferably for a large corporation, because the, so that you're you know wearing a uniform and you're out in front. So then that way they can see you, and people can see you. Mm-hmm. You know, and it just keeps they, everybody in line. Keeps everyone in line. It just breaks you a little bit more. You know, mm-hmm. just just strips you of a little bit more of your former pride or dignity or whatever. Particularly again, if you are lucky or fortunate enough to come out of federal prison with any level of resources, which a lot of the people who do time in federal prison, not a lot, but many or a strong plurality do have because federal prison has a lot of people that come from the middle class, upper middle class, or they're just to put it bluntly kind of more successful criminals. So they got more shit going on for themselves, Mm -hmm. you know? So like they could just come home and get a legitimate business going, even if they aren't pursuing criminal activity because they have the connections, resources, capital to do so they're like oh no no like you can't start your own trucking company right when you come home you can someday but for now you're going to greet people at walmart so everyone sees you yeah and this and and this is an, an interesting example of you know the ways in which because as you know anti capitalists we don't um we want to make sure that we don't, uh, or at least this is this is the thing that I have to make sure for myself and in, in, in my work, um, and especially as uh, somebody who is very obsessive and has ADHD, and I don't want to be a, you know, a sort of um, a class determinist or a reductionist or anything. But there's a lot of things that uh, happen in our society, um, partly because of the way it's structured, to benefit uh, corporations and large companies and capitalism in general but that aren't like intentionally designed that way. A lot of uh, it is intentionally designed to benefit capital, but a lot of it, it's just like, oh, well, this is a nice bonus. And this is, you know, this is one of them uh, that the fact that it's, it's a nice supply of laborers for large companies and people can't, um, you know, give their labor to their, their friends and their family and their, their community is, is kind of like a little cherry on top of this big system that was intentionally designed to um, funnel money and resources and, and, and human, human beings towards uh, profit generation. So that's, that's interesting because, yeah, it, it reminds me of um, the way that there is, there's this misconception among uh, some psychedelics activists and proponents that, oh, like the reason psychedelics are illegal is because psychedelics would help us fight capitalism. You know, if more people did psychedelics, they would, they would wake up. And that's not actually true. That's not the reason that psychedelics are illegal, but it doesn't hurt. No, it doesn't. It's an an unintended consequential benefit to the general process. And in this, this, I really do think that the actual intent is, like I said, just to, just to, you know, just to, just to dominate, just to kind of put their, foot on your head for a little bit longer for as long as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. So like for me, if I get the five years and I do slightly less than three, this process won't be over for me until I'm damn near 50 years old. You know, like only So wait the four year probation four year supervised release afterwards, which would be, yeah. So I'll be like pretty much almost 50. I'll be coming up on my late forties, early fifties. It'll be almost 10 years from now. Would you be spending the entire four years in the halfway house? No, 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 no. After after a few months, okay. they they start letting but you still, out. Yeah, yeah. They start letting you out during the day to go to work, and then they over time they start giving you weekend passes. 
and then, you know, multi-day after the weekend passes. And then after a few months, they generally release you to home confinement, which is fucking hilarious because when you're in the halfway house, you can kind of like run around the entire city as long as you got back to the halfway house at night. But then for home confinement, you just have to sit at your house. So it's, it's completely, yeah. it's completely nonsensical. Again, it's only objective is just control. It's just strictly, it's, it's strictly control. Yeah. That's- and, and the idea, I mean, I feel like even people who, uh, you know, aren't abolitionists kind of understand that the system is not rehabilitative and that's n- at no point in this entire system is any of this meant to rehabilitate you. Because if that was the case, they wouldn't prioritize work over family, which is the only thing that can, you know, human connection is the only thing that can help people, you know, get better if, if, you know, if their, uh, if their crimes were even antisocial in the first place, the only way for them to um, heal from the the traumas and the poverty and everything that would have led them to, for example, a violent crime is like actually being in, in community. And uh, yeah, so shuttling people to work first is, yeah, it's just so transparently, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, you know, like, fuck, fuck me needing some time to, like, be with, like, my wife and my mom and my family or whatever to, like, try to relax and decompress from the hell that I'm about to embark on and, you know, make meaningful connections with those around me on the backside of this. And honestly, even talking about this, I'm so dissociated and so detached when I'm even saying these words to you because I can't even imagine a time where I'll be free after this. Like, I, it, I cannot, I can't see that. If you, if you offered me a million bucks cash and an unzipped duffel bag in front of me and you were like, write an essay about freedom, I really couldn't do it. I could not do it. I, I, I can never imagine me ever, this ever ending because, and you know, and that's by design. That's how, that's, yeah. that, that's why they create these situations. That's yeah, why. I because if you were able to, and you know, and I, I, I struggle a little bit because I, um, I am kind of like a, an optimist look on the bright side, not even look on the bright side, but like I, I try to it, it, for my own sort of survival and the fact that you know i have children and there's a climate crisis uh i i look at things in terms of like well there's there is always a possibility um to heal and to, to move on and, and and grow and i look at people who are doing you know um amazing like prison support networks and abolitionist movements and um a, a lot of those uh, are, are led by formerly incarcerated people and formerly incarcerated people are doing a lot of really incredible work the same way that, you know, um, parents who have lost children to overdoses are doing really incredible anti-prohibition, like pro-safe supply movements. So there is this, but like, I also, I don't, I feel ambivalent about even talking about this kind of thing because I don't want to, you know, um, diminish like the horrors that you're, uh, you are going through and are going to for a long time and just be like, Oh, well, it's fine because you can write a great book when you're out. Like it's, yeah, that's, uh, that, I mean, that's what, everyone, that's what everyone tells you, right? They're like, yeah. Oh, you're the best screenplay. You're, you're, you're going to be a legend, man. Like you're going to be a hero to everyone who knows you and you're, you know, like you'll be able to help people in there. And I don't mean to be petulant. I really don't. I don't mean to be rude. I don't mean to be aggressive or whatever. But a lot of me is like, man, fuck all that shit. (laughs) He said I want to write a fucking book. Like I'm like my life was fucking fine. Then they took it from me. And who said 
and you know, and like, I mean, yes, I know I can technically help people in there and I have no issue doing so maybe if I was in the right mind state, but to be honest with you, I'm not really thinking about fucking helping anyone in there right now. Like I don't know any of these people. They're not my family or friends. They're people that I'm going to be stuck with. And I respect that we're all in the same horrible situation together, but like, this isn't a movie. You know, like, this isn't, you know, like, like I, yeah, and like, yeah, like I understand a lot of people have been through this situation before and thrived afterwards. A lot of people have also like, you know, fallen into addiction or suicide or just led really suboptimal lives due to the amount of trauma that they onboarded during this experience. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm being consigned to this hell for a substance that's basically de facto legal in the entire fucking country. Like even yesterday 40 congressmen which for the democrats that's about like a quarter of the entire house wrote biden again and said when will you honor the promise that you made pardon all we talked about that at the end of the last interview they they did it again yesterday Yeah, they, 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 they hit him up again. They were like, hey, the holidays are coming up. Like, are you going to fucking do this? Or was yeah. this just bullshit that you said? One, because you were desperately trying to garner any type of support you could from Bernie voters, Cory Booker voters, and Elizabeth Warren voters who were on the fence during the primaries. And two, you didn't even understand what you were promising. You thought that like you were going to pardon a bunch of people who are in federal prison for smoking joints because you're 80 years old, not realizing that, yeah, all of us who are in federal prison were there for trafficking. We sold large amounts, huge amounts, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars worth of marijuana. So there's, you know, so, so, so by agreeing to do so, you're agreeing to pardon us because that's, I don't know if there is any, there might be two or three people that got caught smoking weed at national landmarks or on tribal land or something that are in there. But I mean, they're, they're almost an intro and I don't diminish their suffering, but they're almost like an interesting uh, case of like, wow, how did these three people end up here out of 2000? The overwhelming 99.999% of us are large scale traffickers. And I look at his language on it and it's so loose and slippery. You know, he talks about reclassifying it to a schedule two drug. Well, fucking cocaine's a schedule two drug. (laughs) So how's that? We always forget about that. It's scheduled higher than cocaine, right? It is scheduled higher than cocaine. It's fucking bananas. I mean, none of it makes sense, but like. Ergo, ergo declassifying it down or reclassifying it down to schedule two. It's not like if he does that, it's going to do anything for anybody. People serving sentences for schedule two drugs are also in for decades. Yeah. So like it does, you know, so really all he wants to do is in his mind, if he's like, if I reclassify this to schedule two, which allows like limited medical research on it, which basically means he's like, I can punt this until I'm out of the white house and I'm dead. Yeah. You know, cause I'll be like 10, 15 years still to run out the clock on the snail's pace of, of medical research to deem if it's efficacious or harmful or whatever. When we all know that at, at absolute worst, it isn't harmful. And at best, it's probably really awesome for you. You know, they can't, they can't even find, I mean, uh, somebody can correct me in the comments of where I post this interview if I'm wrong. Um, cause I don't want to state this and be wrong about it, but it's my understanding that they can't even find evidence of cannabis being dangerous to unborn children, like to fetuses. Yeah. Like it's, I, yeah, yeah. it's no, that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but you know, Hunty smoked a joint when he was 12 and then moved on to consuming hard drugs rapaciously so because of your own incredibly privileged kids issue who never had to do any time 
even for his flagrant violations of the law. And I'm not talking about all that stuff the Republicans tried to smear him on. I'm just talking about the fact that he was running around a federal district, Washington, D.C., with all kinds of crack cocaine and other drugs that people have gotten caught in D.C. and sentenced to federal prison for. Because, again, you might not realize this in Canada, or maybe you do, but D.C. is a federal district. It's not really like a state or a city. So if you get caught in D.C., you get indicted immediately and just go to the feds. There's no state system for you to go to. Yeah. So, 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 so he committed all these acts that, you know, theoretically, if he had faced the sticker price for his crimes, his kid would have gone to federal prison and he's all good and has a best-selling book and a new baby and like, you know, all, all these nice things in life or whatever. And meanwhile, I have to go to fucking jail for selling weed because when this dude was 12, Joe Biden caught him smoking a joint and then he became how he was. And Joe Biden really just can't let it go. Yeah. And it obviously was like, it's not even causative. It's incidental. <laughs> It's incidentally he's just an yeah. emotional old guy, and he's like, he's like, I'm gonna punish anyone who sells drugs because yeah. of what happened to Hunter. You know, Hunter's yeah, basically- no, I mean, like Hunter, Hunter smoking weed is into incidental to like everything yeah. that happened to him afterwards. Yeah. It's not even yeah. like like he's blaming the wrong thing. Yeah, absolutely. He's basically the fucking Helen of Troy of the war on drugs, Hunter Biden. (laughs) Not that he wanted to be. Although, you know, at this point, I would call him out, honestly, and just be like, yo, man, like, you've benefited from so much privilege based on your association with your father. And I understand that he's had a really traumatic time in his life, too. His mom and his sister died in a car accident that he survived, then his brother died of cancer. I'm not saying that he's in any way had it easy, but like, okay, I read your book, and it seems like you have empathy like go to your dad and just be like, this is ridiculous, dad. Like, don't do this in my name anymore. Yeah. Like, can we just admit that you're doing this because you're mad about what I did? God damn. Yeah. Um, so should we, uh, should we talk about the, uh, the right wing media response yeah, sure. to your, so I'm just to, to give some context for people who uh, don't know. So Dan uh, had a lot of right wing media sort of really relish, um, in his in his arrest because uh you know you're a former criminal defense attorney and well you can maybe you can explain it yeah so Um, i was i was a former really hard left brash outspoken criminal defense attorney who my entree into the consciousness of the country in the limited way my 15 minutes of fame which now is becoming a really really ugly 30 minutes Um, was because I made a viral ad right out of law school called Thanks Dan, in which I used my actual friends from the street milieu to like kind of satirize the more uh, graft addled and completely ludicrous aspects of the criminal justice system. And it wasn't the federal system, it was the state system, because I never practiced federally. But Obviously, it riled a lot of cops, prosecutors, judges, baby boomers, and media types because I was a young lawyer kind of with like a you know joint in the corner of my mouth running around wearing Supreme and stuff like that <laughs> and uh, you know was talking truth to power about a lot of situations and incidents and whatnot. And I wasn't, you know, I'm not going to make any claims for myself of being a really great attorney or whatever. I did the best that I could with my limited skill set and knowledge. For the time that I did so, um, I wrapped that up, that part of my life, long before this conspiracy ever uh, started, came to light, and long before I stepped onto surveillance on May 24th, 2019, on that fateful day on Cabot Street in Squirrel Hill. But upon my guilty plea, when I, I noticed when I was in the room, we did it from my lawyer's office. 
and there's a zoom, you know, you zoom in to plead guilty, which is so dystopian in its own way that it kind of boggles the mind. Um, one of the boxes that popped up on the zoom chat was a woman named Paula Reed Ward who writes crime for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and the Trib Live, which are the two largest newspapers here. So I knew as soon as she was there <coughs> that this was going to be bad. I turned to my lawyer, and you can mute it. And I, I looked at him, and I mouthed, like, Paula Reed Ward. And he just shook his head. He's like, slow news day, man. And I un un unmuted it, and we went back to it. Um, I was in the car with my wife and my father-in-law leaving downtown after my plea, and I, my phone rang and I picked it up and she was like, hi, is this Daniel? And I was like, hello. And she says, this is Paula Reed Ward. I just wanted to see if you had a quote. And, you know, this in itself is extremely disingenuous. And again, my brother works in media. He's an editor for a major newspaper, not crime, tech and business. So I have, I have at least a passable knowledge about how these things go. And I understand that to the letter of the law, she did what she was supposed to do. And she's just reporting on news. She's not supposed to have passion or prejudice or whatever. But you also write things in such a way to attract clicks because that's the way the attention economy works in some such a time. Yeah. So you have me, a person who is guilty. Yeah. So I'm proven guilty. So you can, I guess that, you know, that, that, that avalanche is unleashed upon me or whatever. There's no more presumption of innocence, but what I am in is a delicate limbo between my plea and sentencing where if information or not even information, honestly, just any sort of preponderance of negative attention on me has the potentiality to greatly impact my sentencing because people are people. And I just, I won't, I will not pretend to you that anyone can see a torrent of negative press attention on somebody and not start to feel a certain way or pass judgment. I mean, it's been neurologically proven that this is how we respond to things. Hmm. You know, people, the, the algorithmic stuff for all the social media platforms we utilize, all the news platforms, whatever, it's all stoked by outrage, you know, Shannon Freud, all of these factors. So yeah. while she's asking me for a quote, she knows that I am essentially trapped because if I went off and said, you know, cannabis should be illegal and the drug war, free me, free Luke Scarmazzo. Free Robert Capelli, free John Wall, free Parker Coleman, you know, like, like Biden fucking legalize it now, fist in the air, whatever. Yeah. I am opening myself up to getting smashed for telling my truth. I can't. I can't say it. I can't. If I try to have a more detailed explanation and not just something that's off of like a revolutionary pamphlet and try and go into the circumstances around my commercial, which were I graduated from law school. I got incredibly sick with diverticulitis. I almost died. I was in the hospital for over a month. I needed a colostomy bag that I had to wear for quite some time before it got taken away. So like my abdomen is covered with scars. My stomach is super fucked up. And I was had no health insurance. I was deeply in medical debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I needed a way to make a living quickly to generate something from the talents that I had, which from underground rap and stuff were the ability to speak publicly and do some promotion. So I bashed my head off a wall and then came up with this idea and I went with it and it worked almost too well in spite of itself. And then I had to leave the profession anyways. 
that would not be encapsulated inside a pithy quote. They would just pick and choose the absolute worst and most salacious aspects of that and then run with it. So all I could do... Daniel Music says, fuck Joe Biden. uh Exactly, exactly. Yeah, fuck Joe Biden, fuck the justice system. Yeah, exactly. So all I could do was say, I have no comment, which then they love that because then whatever the fuck they want. And of those people, she was the only one who contacted me. That fuck stick from the Washington Post, he emailed my attorney at like midnight and then ran the article at 6 a.m., which is kind of, you know, you technically CYA, you covered your ass, but we all know that that's bullshit. Yeah. And and then with that, they say, you know, the, you know, music camp did not respond to a request for. Uh Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This skulking guilty piece of shit tucking his tail while he waits to go to prison. And that's why, you know, I, 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 I really, yeah, I mean, I was so infuriated and you're completely shackled because of the interplay between our right wing media and the criminal justice system where one hand really does wash the other mm-hmm. that you have absolutely no ability to objectively defend yourself or make any kind of argument. So the best thing, not the best thing. You're advised to say nothing. You're advised to just tuck up and be quiet. But the only thing that matters in the end is what's printed. And there's really, there are very few people that have a modern internet level media strategy for attempting to combat this. And certainly it's not going to be a baby boomer criminal defense attorney from Western PI. He's just going to tell you to shut up like a mobster leaving the courthouse. You turn the collar of your jacket up, put your head down, put your hand out and run into your car while the flash bulbs go off. But we all know that doesn't work. You know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't help you. So, you know, I posted three days after that on my Facebook because I was so fucking enraged. Mm. This is what I said. I said, the thing about me is I accepted responsibility for what I did and refused to rat on anyone. No matter what happens to me, know that I have honor as a man and stood on my principles. I never blamed anyone else or sought to lessen my own culpability by ensnaring others. I'll do my time like a man. If you know me, then you know that. If you don't know, then go ask somebody. I'll post my paperwork up when I get it. No cooperation in any form ever. Real tough guys do what they got to do. You have no idea what this is till you face it. So most people never will, which is fine. Most people are fucking maniacs who got themselves into what I did. But when it all came down, I didn't break. I'm exactly who I said I was. Remember that. Put that in your fucking newspaper. That's what I wish I said to them. Yeah. Well, but at the same time, probably yeah, it would have <laughs> just, just would have prejudiced me even further than I already am, you yeah. know. And and then I see like you know like like right wing British tabloids are picking it up or whatever. I have like absolutely no relevancy to them in any way, shape, or form. I'm you know not British or whatever. But it's just a good narrative. Yeah, it's salacious. It gets them you know gets them through the middle of the day when nobody's checking their website or whatever. They literally went on my SoundCloud and found hip hop songs I made about weed from when I was like 29 years old. I, I like literally, I, I kid you not. Oh my god. Yeah, I mean, just, you know. yeah, the inability to, to actually say anything and, and, and correct the record and stand up for yourself. Like, that's just yet another uh, uh, injustice on the pile of injustices that is just, you know, it's it's these these little these little things that would add up, you know, like obviously prison is the big one. But the entire from start to finish process is just so littered 
with these little moments that even one of them would cause anybody to like rage stroke for weeks. Like I just, I know know you probably don't want to hear this, but I really do admire your strength for being able to get through this. Um, I appreciate it. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's absolutely enraging to know that people smear your name and your character like that. Whereas, you know, and it's also so funny, the tack that the news media takes, because they really do like to have it both ways. This is the same Washington Post that will post like a kind of like, you know, tongue clicking op ed about how marijuana being illegal is unfair because of the contradiction and the interstice between federal and state law. And then because I made a commercial 10 years before I got caught by the Fed selling weed, they're like, ha ha, look at this fucking asshole. You know what I mean? Like yeah. all of a sudden my status as a cannabis prisoner is invalidated because of something I did previous to such. I just, you know, that, that to me, I just find to be, I find to be so ridiculous because, you know, there's different newspapers have different flavor. Like, all right, I don't expect anything better from like the daily mirror or whatever, but like the Washington post, like democracy dies yeah. in darkness and all of a sudden you're, well, like, you're like a fucking episode of America's most wanted. Like, yeah. fuck you. If I could take this opportunity to lecture my fellow drug policy activists, because the problem here is that this is what happens when we overfocus on the medicalization in terms of legitimizing a drug. If we are going to um, talk about cannabis or any drug in terms of, oh, it should be legal because... Uh, you know, because either because, uh, you know, oh, drug addicts just can't help themselves, like it's, it's a public health issue, or, you know, because it has medicinal value, then this is what happens. We treat people who use drugs as, um, as, you know, victims or as patients instead of autonomous human beings who have the right to make choices about what they put inside their body and who are, uh, who should be able to have pleasure and have fun and use drugs in whatever way they want to. And so this is, this is one of the problems when, you know, okay, the Washington Post is starting to say, oh, you know, we shouldn't put people in in prison for using cannabis because they're just trying to, like, heal their trauma or whatever. That's true, but we shouldn't put people in prison for cannabis regardless, or for any drug, regardless of the reason that they're using it. And so these there's these counterproductive narratives that happen in legalization movements. And I get why they happen, because medical, um, you know, medical frameworks are really powerful for people. People respect the idea of medicine, but it's, it's going to be counterproductive eventually because then we're saying, oh, you know, yeah, you can, we, we can feel bad for, for people who use these drugs, but the people that sell them still evil. And that's not what we want from this stuff. So, right. So, and again, going back to if you, yeah, I had assumed these podcasts are going to be linked and I, I gave the whole factual history, which is, you know, pretty fucking fascinating if I do say so myself behind how all this nightmare came to visit itself upon me in these articles they if you read them they're very slick in how they attempt to link me to um, the, 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 the heroin dealing gang and again I, to your point I have no issue with anyone doing anything I don't think anyone should go to jail for selling any kind of drug think that it's a systemic and societal issue that needs a more holistic approach and an investiture in people, not just, you know, not just punitive things happening, but at the same time and of the same token, they know what the fuck they're doing. Cause they're like, all right, like we hate this guy. So what are we going to do in any way, shape or form to smash him, to bring him down, to make him look as bad as possible 
right now because what they really didn't like about me was when I made that commercial, one of my taglines in it was fuck all these stupid laws. And then I said, laws are arbitrary. And that really drove not (laughs) not the criminal legal establishment, but the media establishment nuts because it's all comprised of baby boomers whose lodestar of how they perceive the world is that while the system might have some unfair aspects, God damn it, it's still a system and it's the only system yeah. we have. And I was like, fuck your system. Your system is an absolute joke. Watch me make a joke commercial about it and you're not even going to understand why it's so funny. <laughs> now I've kind of become this Andy Kaufman where my entire life to this point has become this really, really terrible performance piece and I'm going to have to live the punchline of it. But I do find it very, very, very ironic on a level that I can't even adequately convey that I said laws are arbitrary in a commercial. So now they're about to smash me and sentence me to a very, very, very draconian federal prison sentence for something that is legal in the state that I did it in. And both the legal stores and I are violating the same system of federal law. So basically, they're like, you said our laws are arbitrary. We're going to shut you up by sending you to prison under this arbitrary law. Like, they don't even understand. You know, they really don't. They're so constant in their power and their privilege and their position by dint of their age, their color, their ethnicity, their status, and the positions they've been granted in our plutocracy that, you know, to quote, uh, to quote the famous Jew, Jesus, you know, forgive them. They know not what they do. <laughs> they, they literally, they don't even understand. They, they, they don't get it, but you know, that's a little comfort to me, my wife, my mom and anyone else. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, my kids are, my kids are, hi, honey. Yeah. Just one second. Okay. So we're back. I just, uh, yeah, <laughs> needed to go attend to a toddler for a moment. But um, yeah, well, I, I we can probably wrap up soon here. Um, Dan, thank you so much again for joining me here and for sharing your story um, and your your you know uh, your perspective on all of this because it's it's so valuable. And I hope that people uh, listen to this and share it, especially share it with anybody uh, older people that oh <laughs> to especially share it with older people, liberals, you know, uh, we did yeah, a fair fence, amount of yeah, fence sitters, anyone yeah. who's truly leftist, radical, socialist, Marxist, anyone who looks at society through that framework. Um, yeah, they already, they already know what it is. And- on board. I mean, share with them too, but yeah, um, this is really, it's the people that don't generally choose to engage with this stuff that need to hear about it. So yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Dan, you have you have uh, a last thing you wanted to add um, from the last episode too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's one thing that I wanted to say again because I do feel much maligned in this, and I don't. I think a lot of people have enormous misconceptions about who I was and who I am and who I always will be as a person. And again, just because I can speak in a I don't know, commanding or some might say glib fashion. If you don't like me, you know, say what you want. I think people sometimes forget the level of pain and suffering that myself and my family have had to go through behind this and how absolutely horrific this has been and will continue to be for us. And 
for anyone who saw me vis-a-vis the commercial and they were like, well, what is this guy? Like some type of cartoon character doing this, doing that, whatever. The thing that I would say is, is that long before I ever got the credential to be an attorney in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and long before I ever went to law school, I was a kid who hung out on the street making hip hop music and smoking weed with my friends in the city. And that's who I always was. And that's who I always will be. And that's kind of the good part of me that was untouched by all this other bullshit. And when I was doing that, I had five cents in my pocket on May 24th, 2019, you know, I got hit for over a million dollars worth of product. It's not the money that ever made me. And it wasn't my status that ever made me. It's who I am and it's my values. So in the fall of 2019, when I tried to turn myself in, which I mentioned, I think in the previous podcast, I had heard that there was a superseding indictment coming down with three to 10 new defendants. And it was assumed that it was going to be on the marijuana side of it, which would make a lot of sense because they already had a bunch of people. There were a bunch of people cooperating. And this is generally how these things go. Mm -hmm. I think that they put the cart before the horse in terms of assuming just based on my background and who I was, that I was amenable to cooperation, that they could crack me in some way, shape, or form. So when I attempted to just turn myself in on the same charges that they were facing, they said no, and they were like, you can only come in if you talk. I refused to talk, and I hung out here for two and a half years and just tried to make the best out of a really horrible life situation along with my wife and my family, and they still came back, and they fucking crushed me. But I'm pretty sure I blocked that superseding indictment from coming when I laid myself down on the train tracks, so to speak. So honestly, that's potentially 10 guys who are going to have a good holiday this year and be free. And I know who these guys are. Most of them are my friends. I would never betray them. I do any amount of time I had to before that happens. So whatever happens to me, I'm glad that I saved them. I love them all. And I went to prison for my friends. That's who I am. Put that on my fucking tombstone. Not those fucking headlines. That's who I am. I went to prison for my friends. I wanted them to know that because a lot of them I haven't talked to in a long time, obviously, because of the vagaries of fate. And, you know, it might not be safe for them. And uh, I get that. I just want them to know if I don't come out on the other side of this, that I don't regret it. And that I love them all. And that it was my honor to go to prison for them because this is wrong and no one under my watch was going to go besides me ever. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing that. We, um, we, we need more people like yourself, honestly, um, because it's, uh, it's hard when we're all pit, pit against each other under capitalism to, to stick to your principles. They make it hard on purpose because that's how, they they sow discord um and 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 strife so that we can't build solidarity but um if more people can can be brave and do that kind of thing um we might be able to to get this movement um to make it stronger and stronger so that we can prevent more people from going through what you're going through right now so thanks for having me i really appreciate it thank you If you're wondering what you can do to help Dan and people like him who are being unjustly imprisoned for cannabis offenses, please go to pardonsnow.com 
and joined the No Pardons, No Votes campaign. This is a campaign to pressure U.S. Democrats into keeping their promise to pardon federal cannabis prisoners. It's a great way to join the fight and start holding politicians accountable for their promises. I want to thank Daniel for sharing his story with me. Thank you to Maria Guido for putting us in touch. You can follow her at Sandernista412 on Twitter. She sometimes posts updates about Dan. Bread and Poppies is produced by Marcel Rambo. The music was created by the artist Pusher. You can find him on Spotify and also on TikTok where he makes really fun anti-capitalist songs. The microphone I'm using was given to me by Mark Edwards of Ultraviolet Podcast. That's a great show. He's like a leftist Joe Rogan. Thank you so much for listening and for helping with comments and engagement and whatnot on social media so that we can collectively harness the beast and use it for our own purposes. Please share this episode anywhere you can. Be well, keep up the fight, rest, and take care of yourself and your comrades. I love you all. See you next time. Bye.